I'm Andrew Junker with Roman Honeycutt. Hi. And this is why we do this. You are listening to episode 22 of Why We Do This. Um, first off, before we really jump into this episode, um, and it's a longer one, it's an awesome episode, but um, I just want to call attention to, you know, we've been talking about Moonlight for a little bit. and For like a year. For like a year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just an amazing film, and, um, and it won Best Picture at the Oscars. Yep. Um, which is... It almost didn't. It almost didn't, which is <laughs> weird. There's definitely some weirdness going on, but uh, still, just I mean, we know a couple of people that worked on it. Um, there are people in our community too that are, in, you know, at the helm of that film, and I just think it's fucking amazing. That yeah, it I won. Th- I think we're so excited about it, also because it, you know, it, it is a victory for the Bay Area, I think for sure too. Yeah. Because of Barry and and you know, and and I think it's just it's in Kiva and, and David and. All the people. Um, so I think it's just uh, yeah, we're just really, really, really pumped. Um, and one of these one of these days we'll get uh, hopefully uh, Barry Jenkins or uh, James Laxton. Yeah, James. Uh, yeah. It'd be great to to talk more about that process with with um, some more people that are closely connected to it. Uh, this episode we have. Uh, a uh, friend and really awesome, uh, really interesting person, uh, Spencer McCall, uh, is on. And we know Spencer originally through Joey Izzo, who's been on the show before a long time ago. Um, we really kind of became aware of him because he made this documentary years back uh, that's just amazing called The Institute. Yeah, we should actually go even further back, um, you know, about the Jejun Institute mm-hmm. um, because you and our friend Adam Davis got me into it because you were being really weird and cryptic about it (laughs) and just like mentioning how it was this life-changing experience and this thing and you were really like playing like living in the world of it and so I was like okay they're in some kind of cult and I'm curious and I want to find out what's going on I think that's the proper reaction to have to this yeah and so I you know went and discovered the Jejun Institute and it was incredible and me and my wife were just like blown away by how amazing this thing is um, like this whole world created by this group of people really just because. Yeah. And just just like the spontaneous, weird, fun trip that you get to go on. And, and then, um, you know, and we had met Spencer kind of here and there just, you know, being in the film community here. But then, you know, then he made this the documentary about it called The Institute. And I think the thing that we loved so much about it was it was part documentary but then much like you and Adam kind of explaining it to me it sort of loses itself in the world of it in the genres kind of bend and you don't know if you're watching something that's real or not anymore and it kind of doesn't matter Um, and I would say that it's kind of part of Spencer's whole thing too absolutely Absolutely. (laughs) you don't know during this interview there were times where I'm like are you being real with me or are you kind of playing a part right now like there were which made for a really awesome conversation yeah he's got some great stories yeah yeah (laughs) Spencer also mentions uh, a project he's working on that's a a documentary focusing on the ghost ship tragedy and the and the people that were affected by that Um, so we talk a little bit about you know what the responsibility is of creating a project like that and to do it with respect All right, here we go. 
just been really conscious over the last few weeks of like making sure when I say something, it's not bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Like, fuck. Like, sometimes, like, it's hard to have a conversation if you don't give a shit, really, if it's, like, entirely factually accurate. But yeah. now that we're, like, in this realm of uh, whatever they're calling it, post-truth or, or oh, fact-checking yeah. or fake yeah. news or whatever, yeah. it's like, fuck, dude, I don't want to... Oh, uh, sorry, is language okay? It's fine. Yeah, it's okay. totally okay. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I don't want to, like, perpetuate gossip or rumors so i'll probably do that uh during (laughs) the course of this so this is my disclaimer right now that if i do that i'm sorry and anything i say um i'm just saying it and the the onus is on you dear listener to uh (laughs) to make sure uh to call me out on this shit because we'll put up our uh we'll put a fact fact checking site and we'll uh, just have a we'll just have a little like buzzer that goes off every time (laughs) you say something that's well yeah (laughs) That, I mean, that's important, but there's also the idea that, like, the responsibility is on the viewer to not believe everything you're heard or yeah. told. Yeah. And uh, that's the power to, that that we as individuals have is to call bullshit. Uh, the problem is it's, like, h- kind of hard to fact check things. Um, like, I find it hard sometimes. Uh, you know, a lot of people right now are, are really into, like, mainstream media. Like, fuck them. It's their fault that that fake news one one individual over the other in election uh but it really does happen on both sides so problem i guess would be is that individuals don't feel like they have very much power to fact check and then do anything with the truth that they've attained so that's what i'm running into right now um i mean i remember uh who who put out the article that was like People uh, just read headlines. They don't read articles anymore. And it was an April Fool's joke that the body of it was just like, hey, just wanted to check to see if you'd actually read this. this." And people got super upset in the comments. They were just like, that's not true. How dare you? And it was like all just entirely (laughs) supporting the claim that they were making on on this headline. Nobody bothered to read the article. (laughs) God, that's so, I mean... That's it. That's basically it. Obviously, there's the whole like concept of like soundbite news, and I don't know. Maybe there is some value to that. Like even if you can get like a smidgen of truth, that's better than getting no information. Mm-hmm. I don't really know, but there was a reason why there was only like a few news stations like 30 years or 30 to 35. You can fact check me. Um, <laughs> I don't. Know. Yeah, it was like the late 70s. Um, forget when CNN started, but. You know, there was a reason why we only had consolidated media for a long time. And I think part of that is just uh, they didn't have to compete so hard to be like the first person to break a story. And then you had like Woodward and Bernstein for Watergate, like because they broke the story and won like, what is it, a Pulitzer for journalism? Um, You know, they almost in a sense like they did great work, but they also kind of set the stage for like, we've got to be the first um, I am not the first person to call out the media for like trying to be the first yeah. to do things. Um, and it's important to get information quickly, but it's also important to like get information that has some life. To yeah. It. Try to think about like how long it's taken to get to where this kind of where we're talking about this now. Right. Like because it didn't happen overnight. It's like building up over time, getting into this place where it's not just news, it's entertainment. And so in order to be captivating, it also has to be, you know, have some some panache or or extra craziness to it or, you know, like 
slanting it in a way so it sounds more terrifying or, or exciting or whatever, you know? It's like... Yeah, absolutely. Like, I saw this one guy on uh, Fox News the other night, and he basically, like, understood that in order to call out the news for not really vetting a story it and to have it ha- have any attention, he needed to basically, like have it be entertainment Mm -hmm. in a sense. Uh, And the only way that people would give a shit about the story or like watch it or talk about it for a few days in the world we live in is like an eternity (laughs) now. Um, But that was only really gonna happen if it was entertainment. So what I think the power of like media is, whether it's film or a podcast or whatever, is uh, it can relay important information Sorry if this sounds smug, but it can relay important information in a format that's entertaining and moving in some ways, whether the moving is uh, you're crying or laughing or, as Cheech Marin said, uh, you're either crying, laughing, or getting a boner. That's all that you'll pay to, to get in a, in a movie. Or you're doing all three. <laughs> Whoa, that's Oscar <laughs> shit right there, man. Like, I haven't even thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, where do you feel like you sit in this world? Because most of what I know, and, and when we first met, I know that you, you know, do this documentary work. But how do you see the work that you do? How do you how do you see your kind of voice? I mean, with the project that I had, like my first project, I guess that I had done, it was just really it was just lucky access. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what makes a lot of great documentaries is just somebody accidentally gets great access and is like, this needs to be told and nobody else like actually can tell this, um, which was the case with the Institute. And whether it was conscious or not, the creators of the Jejun Institute created something that begged its participants and its, um, I guess its audience to question everything and to try to figure out how much of this is true, how much is of this is fake. And at the end of the day, in this case, does it matter? And in the case of the, the Institute, it didn't really matter because the message of the story was a little bit more like belief has values and uh, the journey is more important than the destination. So it kind of like diverted a little bit. But I I think about that a lot. And we got a lot of flack for people saying like, well, I liked what you did, but why'd you call it a documentary? And it's like, whoa, because it's mostly true. And (laughs) when it wasn't true, I thought at the time I was giving you, the audience of the film, enough clues to understand like, you shouldn't be believing this right now. And I feel like if you just give the audience the latitude to question and to not need to believe, not necessarily to suspend disbelief, but to embrace it, then I think in that case, it's it's acceptable and fine in a documentary. This was a documentary about an art piece whose sole intent was to have people question the reality they live in. And now going forward, so I'll never work on anything exactly like that again, but there was value in that. So I remember when we were doing like the circuit for that movie, um, we were going up against like legit documentaries. Like, <laughs> like they had narrowed it down at one festival to like best dog. It was like the Institute, Blackfish, and like, <laughs> and like uh, the act of killing. And it's oh like, my God. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like laughing yeah. like a little bit. Obviously we didn't win, but I walked away being like, okay, First of all, yeah, I don't think SeaWorld's, like, super tight. I don't think it's tight just because, like, I've 
been to SeaWorld when I was younger and like it's it's underwhelming. It's underwhelming. It's <laughs> fine. Like I get splashed in my front yard. Like the animals are cool yeah. for sure. Um but I didn't walk out of Blackfish being like, okay, I know everything there is to know about saving the whales. Yeah. Um I left the thing and it was like I'm not saying this is like the best way to go about anything, but I left Blackfish and I was like, I should probably read up a little bit more. Like, do whales in captivity actually live less long than whales in the wild? And I'd say what that is, but I forgot. Uh, so sorry. Uh, but the idea is like a film or even a TV show or anything that isn't maybe like a six month uh, intensive course on something can be really effective at being the catalyst to get you to like be an authority on something, but you can't walk out of Blackfish or the Institute. Or I'm not, I, I liked Blackfish, I'm not calling it out, but you can't walk out of that film and be like, I know everything there is to know about. Uh, Did it, got it all. About whales. Yeah. <laughs> and so the same thing is kind of happening right now with um, like Uber Lyft, where. I'm freaking guilty of it. I feel like I read a fair amount and I'm like, all right, I'm, I've never used Lyft before yesterday. And it's like, all right, I'll just give Lyft a try. And I used it and I'll probably just stick with it now because um, peers who I respect uh, or like, not even, not necessarily respect. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, but people I like um, told me to stop doing that. So I'm going to do that. I don't know if I actually made the best decision, but part of like, the fake news post-truth thing is, I think, sort of just like wanting to belong and wanting to be attached to right. people who who do have strong convictions. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's sort of where I'm at right now is is being like, your aunt is still your aunt if she says that totally. fucking Jews need to get out of the fucking country. Totally. Uh, like, yeah, no, totally. Uh, she's still your aunt, so you, you don't have to do everything your aunt says. Not your aunt, your uncle or whoever um and that's what i'm i'm at right now is just trying to like figure out how do i say i still love you dude or gal or in between <laughs> and uh but i i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do this because you told me to yeah. and that's been a struggle for the last at least uh six to nine months I think that's important. I think all of us have to, on both sides, not just jump into a collective hive mind about something. You know, yeah, like we are all supposed to have our own opinions and yeah. have our own, you know, and if someone doesn't join the group, don't call them out and whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just... You know, I mean, you know how family fights <laughs> end up getting. <laughs> well, that's that's the actually the kicker is uh, the fights that I've gotten into with my own family make the fights I've gotten into with strangers on the internet look like fucking nothing. <laughs> so so I don't know. Sometimes people are like, you wouldn't say this if you were face-to-face. -face. It's like, no, I've said way worse to people face-to-face. -face. Um, a lot of times my own, like, blood. So, but I, I do think there there's there may be some value in, like, getting together and, and meeting up with people. Um, yeah, I spoke with this one company uh, down in L.A., and they're they're starting this show um, that's all exactly about that is trying to get people who have, like, bitch fits and pissing contests on the Internet to, like, uh, go get coffee. And, like, it sounds like a cool idea. Um, yeah, so we'll see that in a, a little bit. But um, at the same time, I, I think there might be some of their episodes that are, like, 
uh, are not going to end well yeah. <laughs> either way. Yeah. Um, but it's a nice thesis that if you're in the same room with somebody, you're not going to fight with them. One of the things that we talked about in the uh, last episode that we did is kind of touching on the idea of like, what's the responsibility of of a filmmaker? Like um, what we were talking about before was just kind of like trying to tap into like, not necessarily in the sense of like awareness through documentary, but awareness just through films and trying to create that connection and understanding. Where do you feel like for, for you, do you, th- do you think for, for the work that you're interested in, is it more about those kind of, I don't want to say like, there's definitely something a little bit sensational about it, but it's like a more controversial kind of thing of like taking these people who don't meet in person, having this fight and putting them together in a real space. Like, like that seems like more of a, like it's not really documentary, but it's like you're playing off of this kind of like social, uh, what is, what's the term? Like, um, experiment? Nah, well, that's not what I, what I was trying to say, but like, um, uh, there's documentary and there's like social commentary, you know? Well, there's documentary and there's social commentary and then there's just exploitation. Yeah. Um, and so like, what was it? The Donahue show or like Jerry yeah. Springer or something yeah. where it was just like, so we're going to take these two people who don't disagree on anything and we're going to put them in the room and give them a bunch of chairs to like hurl at each other or like Geraldo or whatever. The line between trying to like get different sides to find some common ground or just even be in the same room and like get to voice themselves, which is empowering to a lot of the people who follow either side, whether it's Nazis or nuns or whatever. <laughs> Nazi nuns. <laughs> Nazi nuns. <laughs> they're, they're a real threat. A <laughs> threat to our civilization. Uh, it can quickly become exploitative where yeah. it's just like, we're just, this is just a cage match. What is the thought process to figuring out how you don't cross that line and how you create something that actually can be effective or can have a message that's not just exploitative? That's a great question. Because... Um, so, like, with doing a project on the ghost ship fire, we're like, well, exploitation can also be um, using victims to create some agenda. And, you know, I don't know what that agenda would be for this film, but using people who died to say, like, tech, get out of the fucking Bay Area or um, whatever. And that would be really a disservice to those people. So, for me, it's like, as much as I like to, like, Weak or push the story into a certain like location Mm -hmm. at the same time like there's a lot of things that you can't change you just can't so sometimes like the projects that I work on and documentaries only one I can tell you about I just dropped like 50 grand in credit card debt on a narrative that I can come back to in a second but um, (laughs) that will never see the light of day Um, oh I, I see, like, kind of documentaries at least, or even, like, narratives as kind of, like, situational design. So you're basically creating, like, a situation. You're trying to, like, put everybody into a situation to create something that is important uh, and meaningful. So when it comes to, like, situational design where you're saying, like, okay, uh, plants X, Y, Z, you're going to be here and you're going to be here until this point... Uh, whether I'm just talking about in the editing or in actually like blocking actors or plants or whoever. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of ways you can go about that. So you can say, um, 
you know, B here, and then you're going to enter at this point to create this reaction. So it's A plus B equals C. Uh, but sometimes the C in that situation can be, instead of something that is meaningful or has has anything to say, it's just C is uh, two people fist fighting or jumping off a skyscraper with an explosion. Um, and that's that's fine. Uh, I don't have that's anything. Hard, I, think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I wish I could go one day without thinking about die hard. Um, Why? I really just can't. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Great I, question, I, 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 man. Cut your, I cut you off there, buddy. <laughs> no, I think about Die Hard all the time. Um, well, yeah, I guess I kind of trailed off. I, some, uh, apologies if I go down tangents sometimes. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's it's all about, like, using restraint, I suppose, and being like, I don't want to make anybody look like a doof unless they're in on it, too. And my challenge has been, like, not making the audience look like a doof where uh, the f film or films that I would work on, like the joke, as much as I want it to be, it can't be on the audience. Like there has to at least be like a handful of people in the audience who are like, I'm in on it. But all that does is create a niche audience. And I, I think about this a lot. It's like, do I want to create something for everybody or do I want to create something for like, a handful of like-minded people, or do I want to create something for people who don't think anything like me? Um, yeah. So I'm trying to think that all the time. Guys, you don't have to cut this. Can I pee again? <laughs> okay, you don't have to cut this at all. <laughs> leave, it, leave it like, you know. We'll just put like intermission yeah. music in there. Yeah. Like. <laughs> the thing you were talking about is like trying to be sensitive in terms of like if there is a joke, who's the joke on and, and playing that in a way that I don't I, right or or who's the target of the project you're working on yeah yeah um, yeah like is the target somebody more systemic uh, is it somebody who actually has power or is it somebody who is kind of powerless in a sense so I think a lot I've had a bunch of meetings recently with uh, producers of not the producers of I want I'm not um, I'm using this as an example of shows like. Uh, crocodile hunters and duck dynasty and like bigfoot watchers and stuff like that and kind of like being disappointed walking away being like you don't understand you're kind of like making fun of people who really do believe in this stuff yeah yeah a little bit or uh really this is their life um even if you're paying them well and maybe even if they're aware of the fact that they're a joke like honey boo boo or something um is this something you should be doing in general? I mean, if it sells and nobody's getting like physically assaulted, yeah. then I guess it's fine. But I don't know. I just think about that a lot is like in documentary anyway, like know who your antagonist is and like make sure that there's somebody who deserves being scrutinized. You know, Dr. Phil recently did that thing where he uh, did like an expose on Shelley Duvall yeah. and like girl has like mental health issues like yeah. what the fuck like, yeah yeah what what is that that's just exploit exploitation so and i know he got a lot of flag for that and and um why even do something like that in the first place like that's the thing that gets me is how do you go into something like that seeing it as some kind of an opportunity to i don't know what do you what do you what can you possibly gain by something like that yeah i'm not sure <laughs> well attention it's like she's just says crazy shit and sometimes it's 
fun to rubberneck on the road when you see a car accident. Um, I mean, that's kind of human nature where you can be like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I'm not that person. But at the same time, it's like, you know, like, oh, like, what's wrong with them? So (laughs) I I was doing like an impression halfway between Dr. Phil and Shelley Duvall there. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what that was. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, but Um, anyway. I mean, so, you know, sort of a broad question, but like when you are thinking of a project, like let's use the the ghost ship uh, dock as an example. Do you kind of formulate like a goal in mind beforehand or are you kind of open to the like I want to hear there's some there's something here and maybe in the journey we'll find something God damn that's such a good question because um, yeah I, I, I think it's really hard to go into any project without a thesis right like Orson Welles is up for fake which is like one of my favorite uh, movies amazing. of all time yeah he called that a film essay not a documentary um, and he did that for a few reasons but with a film essay, you can go in with a thesis and prove it by the end if you know what you're doing. Um, if you've, and he obviously knew what he was doing, with with something that is trying to capture a moment in time, um, I it's it's tough. Um, I I battle between the two because one is like being a social justice warrior. So for the ghost ship fire, it would be like please don't shut down these art spaces, please. That's not what any of these people would want. And and nobody, well, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think any of these people wanted to live in that situation. Yeah, They wanted to have a, a space where they, a studio where they could, you know, do, do their thing. Mm-hmm. But nobody doesn't want to live in a nice, secure, safe uh, niche. And most of the people who died there didn't live there. I mean, they were, there to see like I'm, I just get like angry when uh, you keep seeing like the thing about like a rave so okay it's a rave so now we just uh, can dismiss them as like uh, people who did ecstasy Druggy, or, like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know where that came from I mean but whatever people, people just generalizing and trying to fit it into their narrative you know it's just yeah and again disclaimer if somewhere they use the word rave, then, okay, you you got that. Um, but when I hear the word rave, I think of, like, uh, cyber goths, like, under a bridge, like, dancing or something. Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. think of, I don't think of, like, the beautiful people that, that died and died hoping to just, you know, sh- try to share what their idea of the human experience was. So the, I would definitely, if I go into this, the project itself would be, like, going after whatever it is I could find out that they would have wanted to come out of this tragedy. That said, going forward and speaking to like their family or whoever uh, would, that would possibly shift. Um, And then also doing a project like that, like the Ghost Ship Fire, like obviously we'd need to cover production expenses somehow and that, you know, who knows how you ever do that, but but a project that's as sensitive as this, like, I couldn't accept any profit making right. a project like this. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of a thing. It's it's like, and a lot of documentaries do get profit. 
sometimes I think that's fine. If you're doing like, if you're like Errol Morris or like the kind of films that he does, um, then yeah, I think he deserves to make money on, on the topics that he does. But when you're, if you could ever possibly be accused of exploiting a tragedy, which that is not what I'd want to ever be doing, but you would definitely have to donate every cent that you could to either the families or the warehouse coalition or anything. And so that's what I'm thinking now. So yeah, it's it's a shift, I guess, uh, in answer to your point where I, I do have to go in and the general thesis is, or question to posit is, what would the victims of the ghost ship fire want? And is that something that can be achieved by the people fighting for them now? And then also, what does it mean? What does gentrification mean? What does uh, tech mean? What does automation and mechanization of jobs mean? Uh, so I'm thinking a lot about that. Mm. But that said, I don't know. I mean, I'd also want to ask permission from a lot of the family members. And one of the people that passed away was uh, definitely somebody I'd consider a friend. I know she'd be <laughs> she'd be down with this. Um, but, you know, maybe other people wouldn't or their families wouldn't. And if the general consensus was, or I, I'm sorry, I believe she'd be down. Who knows at this point? Maybe she'd say like, fuck this, like that fire's not interesting. This docket wouldn't be interesting, <laughs> which is probably what her, her thing would be. Um, no, I, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, it. I, 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 that's the problem yeah. is that's yeah. really the problem is when you're creating a film, you want to just posit these theories that you don't know if they're right or not. You yeah. don't know anything. Um, and again, just for documentary. For narrative, I suppose, like if you've lived through an experience that you know what the outcome is, then you can script it, you can write it, you can yeah. block it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Great question, though. Yeah. What I mean, is there one side of that that you're more drawn to? Are you are you more drawn to documentary? Are you more drawn to narrative? So I had done a documentary in quotes, but I had never intended to do documentaries in my mm-hmm. life. It was mm-hmm. just something that... Like, I just knew that I, I could do and was probably in that position the only person who would ever or could ever be able to do it. But that wasn't my intention. Like, my film tastes are not very, like, eclectic or, I'm sorry, esoteric. Like, I'm not a Bergman guy. <laughs> I like Star Wars. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to make narrative. Everybody just wants to make narrative. Um, so I did. And I made a narrative. I think it was Werner Herzog who said he treats his documentaries like fictions and his fictions like documentaries. I can, that's, that's correct. That's correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Gosh>. Ding. <laughs> right. You got a green light on that one, yeah. folks. Um, and I, just hearing that, I was like, whoa, that makes so much sense from whether watching like Aguirre or watching Grizzly Man like oh my god that makes so much sense uh because like Aguirre is is sort of shot almost like an objective documentary it's yeah like, just like <laughs> yeah you know like we're built we're you know this guy's going down the amazon or or was that the river i think it was the amazon um and anyway so i, I thought about that a lot and i'm like i want to take that approach and apply it to a narrative but i've also been really fascinated with uh the connected universe theory so like Pixar has a connected universe or Tarantino has the connected universe where um, 
you know, somebody's somebody's grandma or grandpa and like all the films are connected with the exception of Kill Bill, which is the film version of Uma Thurman's story about the pilot episode she was on in Pulp Fiction yeah. or something. Yeah. So I was really attracted to that. So I'm like, all right, well, whatever I'm going to do with a narrative, I'm going to have it be connected with all the other projects I've done before just to do that. Just I thought it was fun. Like okay. it's, it's almost like. In the work you do, you're creating like a Disneyland with like here's Fantasyland and here's Tomorrowland. They don't seem to be connected, but if you just walk across this bridge, yeah, um, they're connected. Well, now you're kind of bending the genres a little bit too. Like then it could kind of well, I don't know. In my head, it's kind of like well, if you see a narrative about something that was a documentary connected to a documentary, yes. it kind of bends the yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, I thought it would be fun to make a narrative fiction sequel to a documentary. Yeah. Um, I really can't, for some legal reasons, say what any of these films are. Um, Listeners can, you know, you guys know that um, I've just done like 4,000 films, um, so you'll have to like go through my my, uh, (laughs) filmography uh, to figure out which it is. But anyway, yeah, I just thought it would be fun where you take a documentary and you create a fictional sequel, not a remake, because like Man on Wire, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like they remade that as a, as a fiction. And that's cool. That's something that's very common. But what if the sequel to Man on Wire was all about, uh, gosh, what's his name? Francois, some French name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Philippe. Uh, Philippe. Some, I, I don't know. Something. We'll, we'll look it up. We'll, um, <laughs> we'll do a pop-up yeah. video for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like, nope. Uh, what if like the fiction was more like about whatever that dude did during like the 80s mm-hmm. might not have been very interesting or maybe it was because it's a fiction you can do whatever you want at that yeah. point it's yeah. so like maybe uh, the guy who did um, Man on Wire you know he went from one side of the uh, Twin Towers to the other and then like in the 80s the US government was like we need you to, <laughs> to like we need you your skills to like traverse some like canyon on the far side of like the moon of Io and it, and it was it was that so it's obviously like kind of a stoner half baked idea but we thought it would be fun anyway so i started doing it started making it and i was about maybe 80% of the way done shooting wow. the fiction and then we got contacted um, by, you know, the the big timers down there, and uh, said we want to we want to just remake uh, one of your docs. And uh, it's like, whew, okay, yeah, I can't really turn this one down. Uh, so we did it, and I signed everything over. Just thinking the whole time, like, this shit never goes through. Like, it's going to fall apart. So I'm going to finish the last, like, 25% of the project because it's not going (laughs) to work out. And I did and didn't hear anything about, like, the what the situation with the remake was or anything like that. And then I was done and still hadn't heard too much about like any development or movement, so I started submitting into some festivals, and now we're talking only like a couple months ago. And the fiction started getting into some things. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just a weird, it's a Trouble in Paradise story, but um, so I emailed this uh, individual uh, who procured the rights and said, 
hey, uh, so I kind of casually mentioned that I was working on this thing that shares some IP. Do you think it might be okay if, like, we did some screenings? And I completely understand why it's actually, at this point, was they said, uh, not right now, man. I'm sorry. Um, Like, this actually might be moving forward. Which is this amazing situation where I had just spent two years working on a fiction and spent a lot on credit card debt to finish something. They were super sweet about it, though. They're like, we get it. Um, Can you just wait until our our project's done and then you can do it? But just understanding, like, how development works, it just means a film that's been done for four or five months now, Mm -hmm. I might have to just sit on for another couple of years. Um, Wow. So it's a little heartbreaking, um, but it's also, again, a trouble in paradise situation. It beckons back to a point that I've been trying to, like, put forth in some of my work is, like, the idea that sometimes belief and faith uh, has merit and has value. And maybe I shouldn't have spent the additional, like, $20,000 in credit card debt doing this, like, and should have just had faith in, like, this working out. And in some sense, like, I mean, this isn't a documentary or a story, but what is the merit in belief and faith? Um, Not about a higher power or God or anything, but just in like, this will work, uh, this work. Because because of my skepticism and doubt, I kind of like fucked myself over a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Not wanting to put all my eggs in one basket. And uh, so as I approach like another project, which, you know, the ghost ship's kind of further along, but uh, right now, um, I'm 90% done shooting the Latitude documentary yeah. right now, um, which I'm pretty happy with. And, and a core core message of that right now is just like, got to have a little faith. Uh, R.I.P. Um, George <laughs> yeah. Or Limp Biscuit. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Pick, your poison. <laughs> Pick your poison. Yeah. So I guess that's that's the message I've learned is it's cool that through creating something in this case the medium has been visual um, but it's neat that uh, it's not really about teaching like the audience to appreciate or, or believe in some message it's almost become more about like teaching myself and a lot of that has been from the business side of it yeah so it's been it's been a weird ride so far um, but yeah for me there's something I definitely think about a lot which is exactly what you're saying like faith in the filmmaking process and faith and belief. And I think what you're saying is really interesting about that difference between belief of the audience and, and we were even talking about that idea of like what suspension of disbelief, you know, and appreciation embracing that, you know, disbelief, but also like the personal journey. There are some really interesting kind of the, the trials that we go through as filmmakers in the projects that we that we take on and and I feel like there is that moment where you just have to have absolute belief in what you're doing, even if it seems like it's crazy. <laughs> totally. Oh, my God. Completely. Like, well, and then it become it goes like halfway between faith and um, saying I'm not going to be afraid. Yeah. Because uh, more than faith, like, ultimately, it's fine if if your movie doesn't turn out well or whatever fine but don't stop making it because you're afraid of the consequences of making it yeah uh because that i I reach that point a lot but acceptance and willingness to understand that 
you know, it might not work out, but I got to at least try. And then it sounds so cliche to be like hard work because uh, sometimes it's not hard work. The process, whether it's pre-production, production or post, like if you're passionate about it, that's all the fun work. Uh, it's hard, but it's fun. What's not fun and took me by surprise is like we have to find like errors and omissions insurance. We have to have like an attorney like read through this document and redline and go back and forth for like three months. Like sticking with the administrative side, that's when it really does not become like a dream job. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. And I'm sure you guys have like a beautiful studio here. Um, I'm sure so much of your time is occupied by like water bills and like totally. some, something's clogged in the toilet or like, yeah, you know, that's the stuff. But that's just human life. So you just got to kind of like grin and bear it. So, yeah, entertainment sounds really fun and sexy and stuff. But obviously it's <laughs> like really administrative sometimes. PR. Like, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Like, you have to have somebody go to a festival and, like, tell people to watch your shit. It's like, don't they just go? And it's like, <laughs> it's like nope. <laughs> no, they don't. But we ultimately hired a PR company because initially people weren't going. So what we did, the idea there was, like, why isn't anybody going? It's like, nobody gives a shit because right down the hall is The Life of Pi and um, what's the other one? Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, so they're not going to see your thing. So it's like, well, what do we do? So this project lended itself pretty well, but I think a lot of projects could probably do something similar. Uh, we just got a lot of our friends to go to these festivals. And with a festival, you'll usually have more than one screening, like maybe two or three. So the first one didn't work out. And before the second screening at like, I think this was Mill Valley Film Festival, actually. Uh, we just brought like 10 of us up there with a bunch of giant signs and was just like... Do not see this movie. <laughs> this is the worst. It's a fucking lie. Like, yeah. and we just protested the shit out of our own movie. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> but what we, <laughs> what we did then is we'd be, we'd be like, uh, we'd say like, don't go to this screening. But then we had another one, and we'd say like, definitely do not go on Wednesday at seven p.m. <laughs> at the San Rafael Film Center. Like, that one will be worse. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it, it was that and that screening. Next one, Packed House. Packed House. So uh, I don't know if that was taking advantage of anybody or anything. I don't think so. No. all the yeah. protesters were cool with it. And then the people came and they, you know, giggled and, you know, probably some people hated it but well, you know whatever <laughs> that's fine. great so that's that, great man that was stuff that was one way of like taking back administration on a film project <laughs> where it's like i don't want to i don't i just don't want to get a pr company yeah i want to you know yeah. i want a different way to do this yeah and uh and that worked out pretty well we did that with a couple other festivals and yeah it just generally worked out um and it's so like 101 yeah. sabotage of just like people will like controversy. Like, yeah, yeah. Duh. But like it was that easy. And that was kind of surprising. But that's I have never heard of that. I've never heard of anyone protesting their own movie <laughs> to get people to go see it. Yeah. That's brilliant, man. Like that's that's so cool. And I love I love the idea of a creative solution to something that is just like mind-numbing you know yeah. like i mean to me <laughs> yeah. to me like that's my you know like I, i'm sure there are some people that do pr that 
absolutely love it and get a thrill out of it, and that's great. But yeah. to me, it's just like sure. to think of like ways to get people to go see something. You know, like that's that's fucking rough, man. Well, yeah, I have a friend who's a leadership instructor, so he does like corporate events, uh, teaching mm. people to do like leadership. We were talking one time just about like sort of the concept of resistance, and it comes basically down to you catch more flies with honey than salt. Uh, it's really simple, but there's a few basic principles to what he, he told me and that I thought were just like genius. And um, one was like uh, resistance is met with resistance. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to yell at somebody and expect them to not yell at you back. So that's one thing to be aware of. Um, the other thing is if somebody accuses you of something, and I saw this in the thing that the guy did on on Fox, is if somebody's going to accuse you of something, he's not accusing you of enough like you're bigger than that. <laughs> like <laughs> you should be accusing me of way more than that. Um, and it's like trying to prove your opponent wrong by saying he didn't go deep enough. <laughs> uh, it It's just the idea of two rocks hitting each other don't do anything. It's like, can you get the rock to roll with you? Um, and that's something I've approached in both like the f- films itself is uh, – don't like hit the audience with uh, something they can't accept or or will be resistant to. Like have them give them enough of a toolkit to roll with you, yeah. or to yeah. okay. to or I, I have this friend from high school who anytime I'd come up with an idea, he was my friend. He wasn't a bully or anything. He was my friend. But anytime I'd come up with an idea, he'd be like, "Lame." Like that's why this is lame. And he would like give me this was like pre kind of pre internet. But he'd give me, like, every, like, shit douche troll thing that somebody would say on the internet pre-internet and be like, all right, well, I'll just take all that into account and, like, expect it. So it's also a matter of, like, assuming the audience is going to be like, at this point, I'm going to say, like, that guy's annoying or whatever and expecting that and then going with it. So accepting criticism from everyone around you at all times to not change what you're doing, but expect it and figure out a way to roll with the criticism or like be like, yeah, we already knew you were going to say that. So here's <laughs> why we introduced blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. How much of those kind of things are you actively thinking about or do you do you find yourself kind of bringing those tools in for you when, it re- when you really feel that, that friction or need to... Yeah, that's tough because uh, I'll try to think about it in pre-production mm-hmm. and post-production. Production's tough. You've already set everything up. Like there's not much in it too, right? You're just in. You're in it. You don't have enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm thinking mostly about like the fiction that I did. Um, yeah, just there's not enough time. So then it's pre-production. You try to assume everything that people are gonna talk shit about your movie on, <laughs> um, and looking at. The other things you've already done and how everybody talks shit on your other stuff that you did, post is when you're like, all right, we got to fix everything. Yeah. Um, And then so sometimes (laughs) you'll do the reshoots and try to be like, oh, people said this guy was really annoying and... (laughs) You know, I don't know. Um, but give yeah. a different voice. <laughs> yeah. You just have way more control and time in pre-production and post, I feel, than production. Um, and I'm also somebody who, like, I burn out after, like, 10 hours. I can do 10 hours. Mm. And I burn out. Um, I'm just kind of done. Like, I'm not pumped on anything anymore. I want to fall asleep. I want to pee really bad. <laughs> what keeps you going? What keeps you in it? What keeps driving you to stay, stay the course when... 
you know, when you when you know you have to. This sounds super pedantic, um, and I'm really sorry. Uh, but what drives me to like stay with something, a project for like one to two, to some, in one case three years, um, is all my peers who give up. <laughs> I'm so, I'm sorry, gang. Uh, a couple of you, well, might. I'm not singling you out, but um, I just see so much potential in certain things that are started that never finish and never get to have a life and never get to be shared with anybody. And it's like heartbreaking uh, to me to like see something that's like has so much potential um, that just never gets finished. So part of, I guess, the capitalist competitive side of me is like, this sounds bad, but part of the human condition, I think, is is a competitive nature. And as much as I want to say, like, I'm a Bernie socialist, um, I do want to try to surpass what's expected of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and sometimes that just means just, like, sticking to something. Also, it's a sanity thing. Um, I'll notice certain little things, like, when I'm really wrapped up in a project... Um, and really, really into it. Uh, and yes, the days are long. I mean, I, I know I said I can't really go over more than 10 hours just because I get sleepy. But when I'm really wrapped up in a project, like I'll go weeks without like smoking weed. Whereas when I'm not working on a project, um, I might do it like every day. So it's sometimes it's like this really constructive distraction. Hmm. Um, and it's, And in some ways, it's just a hobby. Uh, for whatever reason, I just thought it was fun to create worlds and like do world building. And uh, with the technology that we have right now, I guess uh, creating like a film is the best way to do world building because I don't really have the tools to actually create my own like Disneyland, which would be fantastic, um, <laughs> where you actually get to like live in the film. But uh, I'm really interested and in already kind of like self investing in like. AR and VR, just to see where that goes and just to have, I guess, a general skill set if something hits me where I'm like, okay, I think we can do something with that. But yeah, for now, it's just uh, it's a constructive way to be addicted to something. And there is obviously a control element to it. Um, but that said, I'm also like really happy to contribute and collaborate with people who uh, I can give myself up to their leadership. Um, I'm happy with that, too, if I really think there's something valuable to what we're doing. Believing in a project and, and, and wanting to support it in some way, back it in some way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You said the like, you know, there's a competitive side to it, but do you feel like for you, and it's and if not, then, you know, don't, don't feel like you have to say it is, but do you feel like there's a responsibility for you to, to keep going and to have that sort of like, maybe proving yourself is not the right word, but to demonstrate that you're Oh yeah, there's a pr there's a big proving thing. Um, I do not feel like a victim of kids growing up, but you know, just the people who are like fucking faggot, you know, growing up, and it's just like I wish I could say that I didn't, from time to time, like check in on a couple of those people who I'm like friends with on Facebook. Uh, I'm like friends with them. Like I don't have any hard feelings, uh, and I don't call them bullies. But like at the same time, I grew up. When I was a little, really little kid, I was like, 
really into tap dancing and ventriloquism. Hmm. I don't yeah. know why, uh, but <laughs> you know, you go to school when you're nine and you're like, I'm a dancer. <laughs> and you're also a little, it doesn't matter whether you're a straight kid or, or a gay kid or, or not, but you go to school and you, you go to show and tell and you do like a shuffle ball change time step. Uh, like kids are just be like fucking faggot. And uh, apologies for using that word, but I'm just yeah showing, relaying what actually happened. And part of what keeps me going and, and wanting to like, so like one day I really would love to do a tap dancing film just to be like, you yeah. know, you didn't like it then. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, you, you want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's self-affirmation more than anything. Like I don't hold anything against um, kids or kids uh, for the most part. Obviously, you shouldn't. Bullying's definitely bad, but I don't hold anything against uh, anybody who said anything. Uh, kids are kids. But it's also, you still live in our hometown, and I don't. Totally, yeah. And and that in itself should give me enough to be like, I'm, I'm content with who I am. Uh, but I'm also never really content with who I am. <laughs> no, I, I, man, I think that's that's pretty. I think it's common with a lot of people, especially in what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know, we're all guilty of this. Like uh, you know, I'll watch something that one of our peers did, and I'm like, this is fucking amazing. And in the back of my head, I'm like, fuck this shit. Like, why am I not doing? I'm gonna make something better than that. Like, you know, why the fuck did they get that and we didn't? You know. And so, like, in the back, I'm, like, trying to quiet that voice a little bit, but also acknowledge that that's just kind of always going to be there. That's that's great, because uh, <laughs> I, I feel that, too. My solution there, because, um, like, uh, you guys interviewed a long time ago um, my friend Joey Izzo, mm-hmm. and he makes these films, and initially I'd watch them, and I'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is so good. Mm-hmm. And then being like, I've got to do something like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not that I ever really tried to, but I quickly kind of realized, like, I can't do this. This yeah. isn't what I got to find my own thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And find my own niche a little bit. And I'm glad I did because I found something like a stylistic niche that I'm going to see how far I can take. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not very far, but. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, there was that where, and I have other friends um, who create this content that my initial instinct is jealousy. It's yeah. just jealousy. Like, God, it's so good. But I think the solution there is just um, don't be jealous, mm-hmm. but don't try to cop- do what they do. Yeah, like, totally. you're not going to do what they do. Yeah. Um, and by not trying to do what they do, then you're alleviating any competition or jealousy, um, both in them and yourself, I think. Or I'm just speaking for myself. No, that's really helpful, actually, because, like, I, you know, I immediately do the same thing where I see, you know, a piece that somebody did and I go, what if I did a story that is like this but does this and this and this and then it kind of eventually just, like, withers away because that's not, you know what I'm yeah. kind of hearing and, and you know interpreting a little bit into my own thing. It's just like that's that's not what fits for me. Yeah. Right. But I'm just like yeah, just trying to grab onto that initial high of like, you know, fuck that was so good and I want that and you know yeah, yeah it really is just I want that. You know, yes. like I want that. I want to put a movie on you know Facebook wherever the fuck and have everybody <laughs> see what I did. You know, it's like yeah, and I'm sure that's just kind of like 
how it goes. There's, there was an interesting, uh, just, you know, like, filmmaker advice that I read at some point, and, and I totally, like, was feeling that a lot, and I finally read this piece of advice that was don't tell stories that someone else can tell better. And I feel like in, in just reading that, I had this moment of just, like, just this weight just fell off of me, and I was just like, okay, like, like definitely there are moments where you still feel that, but for me, it, like, I feel like it really did not just free up, but also help me to, like, refocus a little bit. Totally. And then, like, you know, continually realigning with that or whatever it is that, that the value is. But that was really a powerful thing. And I think it is, like, trying to go back and embrace, like, what is our value? What is the thing that we bring? And it doesn't necessarily mean you can only tell these stories, but it is this, like, if I do tell that story, what's the thing I bring to it that actually makes it my own and it doesn't fizzle out because I, I care about it now, you know, yeah. as opposed to I just want to do it because somebody else was <laughs> said they were going right. to do it, you know? Where it gets, yeah, where it gets kind of hard maybe there is um, how do you then go out of your comfort zone without going into somebody else's, mm-hmm. I guess. So, yeah, I would. That's interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, like one day I'd love to be able to do the amazing work that like Joey Izzo does um, because my thing is all about like, I like the, per- well, his, or Many other people, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to Joy, just, uh, he, <laughs> but like a lot of films that you see out there are just like so beautifully shot and just mm-hmm. so wonderfully shot. And so the style that I kind of got interested in was um, the lens and the camera and the frame rate as the filter as almost like if movies are all about voyeurism, well, a voyeur never has like a clear shot mm-hmm. of like a peeping Tom never has like a clear shot of the girl undressing. <laughs> it's behind a curtain. It's yeah. um, through a binocular. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I feel like people have, at least with the Hobbit movies and a couple other instances, have like really rejected higher frame rates and um, and have also kind of rejected digital in some areas because we need as an audience, I think, a veil over our eyes where we feel protected um, to spy on these people. That's interesting, mm. yeah. Uh, and I think about that a lot. So what I, my, I guess, style would be like, let's use the shittiest fucking camera we can find uh, <laughs> to do this yeah. because because if I was spying on these people, it would not be 5K. <laughs> like, uh, and like, what is the lens? Some There are some films, obviously, where like the lens is just this magic god um but uh i i guess my thing is like trying to put a logic to the camera in the room so with the fiction that i did it was every shot was like found footage movies where it was like there's a logic to why all this is being documented yeah um that became kind of like passe or blase um in recent years but like is there a different approach? So with this fiction I did, the whole conceit was it's not found footage. It's uh, court subpoenaed seized footage huh. uh, where like basically a private eye had installed a lot of like hidden cameras um, interspersed with a guy telling a story about his life, which uh, leading into all these flashbacks, he says, oh, yeah, I commissioned uh, a film crew to go shoot these scenes. Then we shot these flashback sequences on, like, a red, like, truly beautiful, like, great production value. So there's, like, a logic to, like, every shot. Otherwise, it's hidden cameras in the room and 
sort of like a big fish story where the father's telling a story to his son, but he also invited a camera crew in yeah. the room. That's it. really interesting. Like, I've never heard that perspective on the idea of, of voyeurism. Like, I think about um, in the documentary uh, on Robert Crumb, where he's drawing a city street, and he goes in and he starts drawing all the, like, uh, telephone and electrical lines, and he's like, "This is the shit that we like naturally just filter out." But it's like it's his. He feels like it's his like job to put it back in because it. That's so the good. world, you know. So good. And like embracing the shit that's just in the way. In the way of <laughs> what you actually want to see. Yeah, uh, because it creates it creates safety. So if you watch like Rear Window, which is all about voyeurism, like not every shot, but um, at least the at least the establishing <laughs> shots of him starting to spy the frame of the window mm-hmm. of his window yeah is, yeah and then on every shot when he's actually spying the frame of the other p- people's window yeah. and sometimes in some shots it's the frame of his own window and the frame of their window <laughs> um and it's creating a safe space for an audience to spy on people yeah because any film is just spying on people yeah um and getting moments with moments in drama and time that you aren't usually privy to unless you are one of those angles yourself. Yeah. Um, and somebody's screaming at you. Yeah. Just just in hearing you're talking, it makes me think of Man Bites Dog and how amazing right. that one is. I haven't seen Man Bites Dog. I mean, that was great. It's I think all it's about, right up your alley. Yeah, really. you'd, you'd love it because um, it's it's pretty much about a... It's I'll, I'll just set it up that it's a narrative film, but it's a documentary film crew following a serial killer. And... And I th- oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, I think if you watch more of it, you'll. I mean, the premise is just great, but it's like how they play with that. So the whole film is shot by this film crew, and their characters in in this story. But that's all of the footage you're watching is this. Like, I mean, I guess you don't really think about it, but you kind of realize they they ended up editing together and making this movie <laughs> somewhere down the road. You know. Well, yeah, it almost yeah. becomes like Grey Gardens, but with a murderer. Yeah, like, yeah, because yeah. Because they kind of become a little more like familiar with the person, mm-hmm. and then the person is definitely acting a certain way because he knows he's on camera. Yeah. It, it really it gets yeah it's All pretty right. cool yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Tomorrow. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And then come back and then we'll finish. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, uh, okay. So, how um, was it? Yeah. Like, I literally just the other night was watching Sundance shorts and stuff on uh, at my friend's house on their new TV. And it has this, like, overscan Ugh. thing. And it was so interesting. From my p- point of view, it's just like it just sucked the life out of it. And everything yeah. feels like a soap opera. And I think that there's all it's interesting to kind of play with that as well to if you're going to embrace that format and find a way that you would actually want to do something like that. Well, you you know when that is? Um, my father-in-law loves the overscan, like the liquid frame rate yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> and he loves it in stadium settings yeah. where there are a bajillion other people who are giving you permission to not give a fuck if you're... And also, like, sports, they know you're watching them. Like, that's yeah. that's fine. And also, you want to see where the ball is. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, for sports, that's fine, I guess. But for anything where it's about the privilege of, of spying, hmm. um, yeah, overscan takes me out. But also, it's like, it's like for sports, yes, I, I see why you would need things to be that crystal clear. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Especially if you're watching fucking, like, hockey or some shit. But, like... <laughs> Yeah, like a film just being turned into like that. It's yeah. just 
or just watching a movie where you can see someone's like fucking pores on their face. Like, why would you? I mean, that was the thing with The Hobbit. Like, I just felt like because I saw it in the in the forty eight frames. And I just felt like I was watching actors in costumes on set. You said it was like a BBC it was drama. Super, it was super like, weird. Like it, a, and it's funny how uh, BBC would be 25 frames. And <laughs> so only a little bit more, yeah. but, but it still gives you that sense yeah. of like cheap soap. Yeah. 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 Or something. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely took me out of it. Um, so I watched, because uh, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. So for the next two, I was like, I just need the not 3D, 24 frame. Yeah. So it feels a little like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I want to try to, I want to try to get sucked into this. And yeah, see yeah. The magic. <laughs> and I just was like, the first one was just like, huh? <laughs> I didn't bother. I still have not seen them. Because the, I, I nah. loved the 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 just first trilogy. That, yeah, yeah. And I, I was like, I, that in like uh, Indiana Jones and Crystal Skull, I'm like, I'm not going to see them. And I don't think I ever will, and I don't think I'm going to miss the, anything. The frame rate was only one problem with the Hobbit trilogy. No, I, I, I've heard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, it's three fucking movies. And <laughs> it's also just not a very important story. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like as important as The Goonies is. <laughs> it's like some kids want to, or whatever, want to get some treasure. Yeah, uh, but The Goonies was not three three-hour-long movies. Oh, I can totally see The Goonies becoming like a a series. Oh, let's be... Oh, yeah. Now the Strangers thing. That's probably going to be... Yeah, yeah. They're going to do a Goonies series. They're going to do a Goonies like remake and turn it into a franchise. You heard it here first. Yeah, Netflix, Goonies. And there'll be cameos from like Corey Feldman. Oh, totally. And uh, Martha Plimpton and stuff. And uh, Sean Astin, yeah. Oh, but Sean Astin's in the new series of Stranger Things. Oh, really? Yeah, he Season is. Season two? Yeah, he's... They, that he's was... going to keep winking at the camera. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, she was an 80s gal. Anyway, sorry. We're yeah. getting away from that. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you said it, I'm really curious what... If you if you have a definition in your mind, what do you think is an important film? Whoa, man. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> what do you think is an important film? Yeah, like the, what defines... What qualifies. What qualifies, What yeah. qualifies a film to be important? Yeah. Okay. Fudge. Um, I, I, and, and I maybe, mean, yeah, and maybe even how do you start to even uh, think about a question like that? It, you know? it depends on how I go into, walk into the film and what expectations I have, which is actually giving a lot of power to the marketing of a film hmm. itself. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, so I just saw Moonlight. I didn't know, I didn't know the kid was gay. Uh, I thought it was just like a movie about inner city struggle and stuff. And I went in and, and that kind of blew me away. Um, a little, well, yeah, just being surprised. I, God damn, dude, I don't know how to answer that because it's so different, uh, depending on like how, if I walk into a comedy... I'm going to expect, like, five good laughs. I don't get five good... <laughs> yeah. I, co- I can quantify it. That's fair. I need, yeah. I need five, maybe six. I'll say two per act. I need a... <laughs> good giggle. I'll say six. Uh, a drama... Um, I want to... S- oh, fuck, man. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, do I walk out of the... Th- Theater feeling slightly different if only for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess that would be it. And some films, I walk out and I feel different for days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Moonlight, I'd say I walked out and I felt, uh, I was thinking pretty hard about it for, you know, the next, the rest of the day. 
Uh, I was thinking like, oh, at the end, man, I, I just really wish like uh, he had been like, it would have been some triumph, like where he was like, the last shot was him like leading a gay pride parade and like he found himself. And it's like, it's like, no, man, that's so fucking cliche. Like, what? Like, why am I thinking that? And then the other, the other part of me was like, well, they should have just done broke back and like he died at the end of AIDS or whatever. Yeah. Something killed him or, or whatever. And yeah. I'm like, no, that's stupid too. Yeah. And then, and then I, after maybe six to eight hours of thinking about it, I'm like, it ended perfectly. Yeah. That's yeah. how it, that is how it had to end. And that's part of that movie's brilliance is it was really devoid of um, uh, doing what was expected. Totally. Or, totally. Yeah. So that was cool. Um, there's some films, you know, you walk out and you watch the whole thing completely sober and you walk out and you're like, I don't remember any. Like, I, I watched Fantastic Four 2, Rise of the Silver Surfer in theaters and I walked out and I, I asked my friend, I was like, do you remember anything that just happened? <laughs> He's like, no, dude, I don't even know if I could tell you what that movie was about at all in any way. <laughs> or like, uh, I didn't see the new, the new uh, fan. I hear it was, as, uh, it was pretty terrible. I had high hopes for it, man. That, well, this is, yeah. but you know. So I don't know, I guess just, um, and there's a lot of different ways to move somebody. There's not one way. And that's what's cool about movies too is um, you can walk out of a comedy and just start quoting stuff. And for the rest of your life, quote yeah. a movie that you and your pal saw, maybe nobody else saw it. Um, and that can make a great film, even if there was no message to it. Yeah. Um, it got people laughing or got people crying and... I don't know. There's a lot of ways to move somebody, but there's also a lot of ways just to be totally forgettable. And that said, there's a lot of ways where it can become really gimmicky to try to become memorable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where you just throw in shit and you're like, this is outlandish. Yeah. Um, People are going to say this for 10 years. Sure. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they're not. Just falls flat. They're not. When it's done really well, I like horror, but that happens once every five years, I feel. Yeah. yeah. But, oh, God, horror, man, that genre is, like, that sucks most of the time. <laughs> the Witch was great. It Follows is great. Um, so there have been some great movies uh, over recently that were good, but most of the time, man, like, that genre can do so much more. There are great horror films. So when a horror film is good and I'm actually spooked and walked out of the theater and I'm still like a little like, Ooh. that's great. That just never happens with horror. Yeah. Um, yeah. Usually it's like blood and stuff and that's fine. But So then I've, I've got another question that's for you personally. In your mind, do you strive for any of that in the, in the films that you create or want to create? Do you, have a, do you have a hope that the audience walks away with a th- with a thing and if if so do you have any sense of what you want that to be that's also a super good question um i mean it varies depending on the project i'm working on um like i'll just be perfectly honest with like the latitude doc right now like i'm i'm having a really tough time understanding what somebody's going to walk away with or how they're going to walk away feeling yeah I, and i'll figure that out i have a lot of time to figure that out which is good i mean i've got so much footage I don't even really know where to start right now but um yeah I mean it's it's obviously case by case I wish I could give like an empirical answer to that question uh 
What I would love to do, I mean, obviously, you know, we're in Oakland. Like, obviously, I'm a super liberal guy. Um, but at the same time, I want, I want both sides of the aisle to be able to question themselves in using the same questions. Mm. And I know that'll be hard. So one thing I'm doing right now, like, all right, let's look at the show, the TV show Portlandia. Uh, that show, all that's doing is making fun of, like, liberalism to the extreme. But their entire audience is liberals. So it's yeah. basically people having, like, a self-fulfilling yeah. chuckle, yeah. Uh, which is which I think is actually a good thing. Um, I think it's fun to like be able to laugh at yourself. Um, and what I'd like to do now is I'd like to try to create something for, and obviously I'm probably biased because I have difficulty understanding certain conservative ideals or a lot of them, but I'd like to give conservatives a chance to laugh at themselves yeah. um, in a constructive way. Yeah. And... So right now I'm kind of working on a project where I, well, early, early phase. I have to finish up two other things right now. But uh, early phase of um, basically creating like a neocon Borat uh, who Whoa. who basically does Borat stuff. And, um, and in a gentle, delicate way, um, yeah. allowing conservatives to laugh at the ludicrousness of not just their situation, but the world situation in a way that liberals can laugh as well. So f what's really important right now for me is like, where's the common ground? Yeah. Um, and film is like always that. Yeah. Film is always that. Totally. Dude, do you know how many goddamn Trump supporters probably loved the shit out of The Force Awakens? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. And I'm not saying it didn't have some subtle, some subtext of, political agenda in it but it did it in such a gentle way that that subtext is just planted deep within their mind and one day that might mean something obviously it's a blockbuster so it can't do too yeah, much sure. to be pr provocative but film is that one thing that allows liberals and conservatives to agree on something did you see stranger things that said i i feel like it's we it's gotta be weird sometimes uh being like super pro Infowars, Drudge Report, Breitbart News, and then being like, oh, but I love Stranger Things, and everyone in Stranger Things is like a bleeding heart liberal. Like, <laughs> it's, it's some, that's gotta be a, that has gotta be a challenge, and trying to sympathize, or at least empathize with people trying to enjoy content, but also knowing that everybody who creates it is in their eyes like a monster. It's almost the same idea of uh, kind of like liking Woody Allen movies, where guys kind of like yeah. a monster, or a Roman Polanski, <laughs> guy might be a monster, but fuck, that's like great. What's interesting because I feel like it just in in that case, you, I mean you know I mean some people can separate the two you know person and works you know and some who, people can't. Who doesn't love Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, so like that's the kind of thing. But you're probably right. Like there is probably a lot in that show that is like, oh, we are commenting on something yeah, that yeah, is going yeah. on. But I I mean I don't think about that when I watch that show. But here's what it is. I think liberals are better at laughing at themselves conservatives are better at separating art from artist that's 
possibly a, an opinion I may form after fact checking. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure there are definitely, you know, that's a, that's a, that could be a generalization. Oh, uh, I, obviously, yeah, a generalization. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. like I, nothing, I, nothing is a blanket statement. Yeah, yeah. I just like I'm, th- you know. <laughs> But it's funny, like, when you did mention, like, a conservative comedy, my my thought went to that one, like, Kevin Farley, Kelsey Grammer comedy by the guys who did Airplane that was like, we are making a comedy for conservatives. And it was so, like, I just saw a trailer and it was horrible. Oh, so but there was, like, a fake Michael Moore that they, like, shoved in a toilet and farted on. Oh, no, God, no, it wouldn't be that. No, I know, would... I know. I'm just, I'm not saying it's going to be that. But I'm just like, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's a really ambitious and awesome goal because like they don't really get a voice in in that arena. They don't in, in comedy in general. I mean the Abram Zucker team, they are conservatives and they have done some great stuff. But I I'm talking about like in the way that uh so Borat was doing two things at one time. It was exposing American prejudice while also kind of making fun of a weird foreigner at yes. the same time. Yes. Uh, and that's it. So how do you make fun of a neocon while also making fun of, like, the conservatives who might interact with him? And that's uh, that's something. And that... not in a way that is, like, liberal, fooled you and. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Is there anything that you, just in the conversation, has come up that you feel like you haven't had a chance to really, like, talk about or, or some ideas to throw around? Any Anything still lingering? Um, not really, uh, other than, like, I still haven't really made any money making a film. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've had return that has helped me to pay off debt, but I've never really made money making a film. So if making a film that I came up with, uh, obviously I have through commercial stuff, but, uh, so I would just say, like, you know, just gang, be prepared to... I'll make any money ever. <laughs> uh, you might make your money back. That's the best case scenario, and I am absolutely blessed. Hashtag blessed uh, to <laughs> to have at least made my money back on a few projects I've done. Um, uh, but you know that also means you do gotta keep you gotta keep a day job sometimes, or if not a day job, then you gotta figure out a way to a way to sort of take some of your skills and put them into something that. You, you maybe aren't so passionate about, but you just got to stick with that in order to do what you are passionate about. So I guess all I'm saying is don't feel obligated to quit your day job. I hate that whole thing like, don't quit your day job. It's like, no, man, I'm never fucking quitting my day job because I would never be able to do like half the shit I do with my day job. I, and, I, and I just think, you know, the day is 24 hours. You have to be at your day job, if you're lucky, eight hours. Um, that leaves... That leaves the majority of the time, obviously you're going to sleep a little, but that leaves the majority of the time free to to really like take that money in that you're making from your day job, even if it's at, you know, a cafe or wherever. Nothing wrong, uh, <laughs> nothing wrong with working at a cafe. Um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I would say if somebody says don't quit your day job, own the fuck out of that and say no fucking way will I quit my day job. Um, so now as I, I start to kind of reach that next level, I'm at this weird situation where it's like, can I, can I go on and like be involved in like this actual like show that might be taking off 
and also not quit my day job. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, but it, it would be a funny idea to, like, try to find out, like, can I just, like, have a friend come and check my emails and respond to emails all day? <laughs> like, <laughs> while I'm, like, on set. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Thank you to Spencer McCall for being on this episode. Um, we're also really excited to announce that we are launching uh, an Indiegogo campaign for a short film called Paper Birds. It's um, We're really excited about this. It's the first big short film that we have uh, produced as French Press, uh, and we're working with writer-director Lauren Feinerman, who's been on a previous episode. Um, it's a 1950s period piece taking place in the circus uh, with trapeze and uh, all sorts of really cool stuff. Um, we'll put a link in uh, you know, the episode uh, so you can check it out. Um, continuing the, uh, the effort to make this more and more a real show and a real series and a real podcast. Um, we encourage you to uh, please uh, rate us on iTunes. Is it rating or liking or? You can rate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, rate us. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope you like us too. But um, <laughs> yeah, rate us on iTunes. Definitely uh, spread the good word about the podcast. Um, you know, we love doing this and uh, we definitely like to have, uh, you know, more people listening and participating. And and please let us know, like um, anybody listening, if there's somebody that you want us to reach out to and to hear stories from. I mean, this is to, you know, celebrate the Bay Area, celebrate filmmaking in general, talk to our peers, learn about, you know, kind of the inner workings of what it, you know, the, the artistry and the craft of the work that we do. Um, so if there's anybody that you want to hear uh, you know, please reach out to us and let us know. And we want to keep growing this and and uh, making something really awesome. So with that, here's our epilogue. Thank you. Bye. Well, I live inside a mountain and I've eaten all of the rocks. But I don't know a thing or two about loving because I only love my socks. <laughs>